All right, I invite you to take out your bulletin insert. It's got the text we're looking at this morning, Luke 22. If you are new, I, I'm not a guest preacher. I am actually the senior pastor here, but I've just been gone for six weeks of both vacation, study leave, and generosity of the session. So it's great to be back in a gathered situation, seeing your faces smiling, which I always knew you were below the mass, but now it can be confirmed. We're making our way through the Gospel of Luke as we have been, as has been reminded to us, for parts of three years now. But we're coming to the end. Now the reason we preach sort of these long passages of Scripture is we believe this is how we're formed. I mean, it's good to take pieces and truths of Scripture and apply that to our life. That's good and that's necessary, but really that in some way still leaves us in charge of the direction. Like, we just get to pick and choose what we want. This is the direction we're going. I need this prayer, this favorite Bible verse. It's great to have favorite Bible verses and know these truths from Scripture, but we have to also supplement that, a way of actually putting the Bible in charge of us, not bending it to what we want to do and where we want to go, but taking ourselves and, and letting ourselves be conformed to where it's going. And we believe the way to do this is let the unfolding story of God be put before us, called the story of the Scripture, the story of redemption, God working in the world, and say, okay, let's map our lives onto that and see what happens. So we've been working through the gospel of Luke, and today we are heading into the deepest darkness of this gospel. Now part of the effect of letting your lives be mapped onto the Bible and not vice versa is it's not always nice and easy and light and rosy, but it's always real and honest. Sometimes it's actually very dark And that is a central feature of the text we're looking at today. In fact, as I was meditating on this passage just last week, I think I I came across a verse, I think I must have seen it before, but hadn't really delved into it. It's verse 53, if you want to look at it just for a second. This is when Jesus is being arrested with this. It's kind of a sham. The whole thing is illegal by Jewish custom and law. He says this, When I was with you day after day in the temple... You did not lay hands on me, but, and this is the phrase, but this is your hour and the power of darkness. That could also be translated, this hour and power of darkness is yours. Hour and power. Darkness is real. It's real. Jesus is affirming it's real, but it's not permanent. An hour, even if it's a metaphorical use of the hour, is a fixed time. There's an hour of darkness. Jesus is affirming there's a power of darkness, but it's not absolute. There's an hour, it's real, but not permanent. There's a power, it's real, but not absolute. But you know, the effect of darkness, sort of the design feature of darkness in our own life and in this world is to blind us to both of those realities. Some of you were here last week when Dustin Sutherland preached. He made us squirm in our seats, many of us, with this illustration of taking college students deep into a cave and then taking their lights from them and packing them in like sardines into this little cavern. And I could feel my own self and see some of you like envisioning this claustrophobic pressure of darkness in deep in this cave for people who had never been there, putting yourself in that, thinking, I wish this illustration would get over. 
right? And thinking, why is Roger bringing up it again? We wanted to run out of the room when Dustin did it. Think of yourself in that situation. It's dark. The light's been taken from you. You've been led into the cave. You don't know where you are. As far as you know, that darkness goes on forever because you cannot see it. It wants to, because you can't see anything and can't sense anything other than just a little bit of with your hand and feet not knowing where you're going to go. This darkness is communicating it's forever. And if you've ever been caving, spelunking, you know that until you're like two turns from the entrance because caves eat light, it's always dark even right before you get out of it. The design feature of darkness is to blind you to how close you are to the end of it and how close it is to getting over. And Jesus is going right into the darkness. This is your hour and the power of darkness. But the message of the gospel is that in your life and in this world, in Christ, darkness does not triumph. And we see today, and I put this in your insert here, Jesus delivers his people through the hour and power of darkness. And friends, wherever you find yourself today, we know this. If you're in Christ, you can know this. Because Jesus went into the very deepest darkness for us, we can be absolutely assured that he will go into every other darkness with us. He will take us through the hour and power of darkness. He will take us through it by going with us. He will take us through it by going for us. And in the deepest way, he will take us through it by going instead of us. That's what we're looking at in Luke chapter 22. So here's the background. Taylor preached it a couple weeks ago. This is the last night. Since Luke 9.51, the whole gospel of Luke has turned to this point where Jesus turned his face to go to Jerusalem and it's been heading downhill to the cross. This is the last night. In a few hours, Jesus will be crucified. So they've had the, the, the Passover meal, the Last Supper, where Jesus gives the cup and the, and the, and the bread. Taylor preached about this two weeks ago. So they, they had a good party, drank three or four glasses of wine and a literal Passover meal, makes them a little sleepy. But then they heard hard words from Jesus, words like this, one of you will de- de- betray me. That's Judas. They, he said to them, Satan has demanded to have all of you and sift you like wheat. He said to Peter, unbelievably, Peter, you will deny me three times before the rooster crows this morning. And nobody could believe it, but they were saddened by it. And then he went out, they went out, and that's where the story picks up. They went out of Jerusalem, verse 39. And they came out and went, as was his custom, to the Mount of Olives. And the disciples followed him. And when he came to the place, he said to them, pray that you may not enter into temptation. So what was happening is Jesus and the disciples were camping on this place called the Mount of Olives, which is about a mile and a quarter outside of Jerusalem. And he was teaching in Jerusalem during the day. So at the end of the Passover meal, they would have walked out of Jerusalem through what's called the Kidron Valley, which is really like just a little ravine, and then up into this place on the Mount of Olives, which would be just called a big hill of olive trees, Right? Uh, Because that's where they were camping. So they came to the place, which is either the place where they usually prayed and worship, or the place where their bedding was and their tents were, and they were camping. 
And he says to them, I want you to pray that you may not enter temptation. So what temptation is he talking about? The temptation, as we're going to see, is for them to get scared and to shrink back and to distance themselves from following Jesus. And Jesus says, guys, I want you to pray that you may not enter temptation. Now, why would Jesus say pray that you may not enter temptation? It's a very simple question and answer. Because prayer is a really good way to fight temptation. And Jesus knows this. Therefore, he says, friends, I love you. I know what's coming. You don't quite know yet. I want you to pray. I want you to pray. And in prayer, aligning your heart with the will and desire of your Father and the power of the Spirit, that you may not enter temptation. And then, verse 41, And he withdrew from them about a stone's throw, And knelt down and prayed, saying, Father, if you are willing, remove this cup from me. Nevertheless, not my will, but yours be done. And there appeared to him an angel from heaven, strengthening him. And being in agony, he prayed more earnestly, and his uh, sweat became like great drops of blood falling to the ground. So Jesus says, you guys stay here. I'm going to go, whatever a stone's throw was. 50 feet, I don't know, they had great arms, maybe, you know, 50 yards, I don't know. He goes away, and he prays. And you see what Jesus prays? Father, may this cup pass from me. Now, what, what is he talking about? The cup is a, we often talk about this a Good Friday. The cup could be an entire sermon itself. In the Old Testament, the metaphor of cup is used in two different ways. We use one of them for our call to worship. A cup of blessing, my cup runneth over. Uh, That's Psalm 23, Psalm 16. The Lord is my cup. It's a sign of God's favor being lavished on. A cup, a cup of wine, a cup of water, these good things. That's one way the cup is used. The other way the cup is used in in the Psalms and in the prophets, it's the cup of wrath. The cup of wrath. What is that? God, the creator of the world, creates a world and says, it's good, it's beautiful, I love it. Sin intrudes, curses, and corrupts this world like a cancer, cursing, corrupting, and destroying a living being. God, because he's good and loving and a creator who loves this good world, says, I intend to remove this cancer from the world, this evil from the world. God's intention to bring judgment and judge that evil and remove it is what we call wrath, the wrath of God. In the Old Testament, we would say that's the wrath of the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit together, intending to remove this destructive agent from the world. We say, that's great, until we remember what does. Dustin preached last week. We are thoroughly infected with this same destruction and voluntarily part of it. That's the cup. The wrath. God's intending to judge sin in this world. And in the gospel, we see that for his people, Jesus takes that cup and drinks it down himself so that we do not have to. That's the cup. But, but we got to see what Jesus is doing here. First of all, he's praying like he taught his disciples to pray. I don't know if you caught the order. Father, our Father who art in heaven, hallowed be your name, your kingdom come, your will be done. Father, 
you know best. Here's my desire. If there's another way, let this cup pass from me. Yet not my will, but yours be done. Father, here's my desire poured out to you, and yet I submit myself to your will. Jesus, in his human nature, does not want to take the cup. We have to see this. This is not performance art here. Jesus does not want the cup. He knows what the cup is. It's partly his wrath that's in the cup. He knows the agony of the cup, the separation of the cup, the, de- the, the desperation and the destruction that is in the cup. He doesn't want the cup. And we can't just say, oh, Jesus is saying that because he's supposed to say it. We've got to see a real Jesus saying, Father, I don't want this. Okay? But there is something. So what he wants is not the cup. There is one thing that he wants more than not the cup. You look around this room, that's it. You and me. He wants us more than he wants to be rid of the cup. Therefore, he drinks the cup that should be ours. This is part of the gospel. He doesn't want the cup in his human nature, but he loves you and wants you, so he takes the cup. And it's distressing to him He's in agony, the scripture says. He sweats. It says his sweat became like drops of blood. We're not quite sure if that means he's in such distress. He's sweating a lot when he's praying. Or there's actually a rare medical condition called hematohydrosis where because of pressure and distress, you have blood can come through your pores. Very rare. Who knows what this was. Jesus is in distress, so much so that the, uh, the Father sends an angel to tend to him. So let me just uh, make two points of application here. Um, This might be, okay, what we call thin the herd application. That is, things are said and people hear it and are like, yeah, that's really strong. I'm not sure if I can follow Jesus like this. Okay? So I'm realizing I may say something and never see some of you again, okay? But I don't want to lie to you. There's not another way. Right, Jesus says, if there's another way, there's not another way. Guys, if there was another way, the Son of God never would have self-subjected himself to the wrath of God. It's too much. If there was a way of just like, well, just do better, that would, the Lord would have said, oh yeah, there's another way. You don't have to do the cup, just do better. Be in the top 50% of people in this world, which like 94% of us think that we are anyway, right? So good, right? Um, just, just be nice. Just seek justice. If there were another way besides the son taking the cup, he would have taken the cup. Listen, there's not another way. There's not another way by being good, by performing well. There's not another way through Buddha. There's not another way through Allah. There's not another way. Those are hard words, but it was a hard cup. Secondly, we receive a lot of things in our world declaring to us the the utmost importance of the division of people, right? What's really, what's of utmost importance 
is east and west, or rich and poor, or minority and majority, or oppressor and oppressed. All these are the utmost important. However important those things may be, make no mistake, the Scripture says there is an utmost importance of division. There are those for whom Jesus takes the cup and those who take the cup themselves. And we, if you, have, if you know that Jesus takes the cup for you, what's our call? Invite those who are still demanding to drink the cup for themselves to say, hey, would you like Jesus to take this for you? Because he's really generous. He's really generous. So, of course, the disciples are completely riveted by this. They can't get this out of their mind. They're so excited, right? Wrong. Verse 45, and when he rose from prayer, he came to the disciples and found them sleeping for sorrow. And he said to them, why are you sleeping? Rise and pray that you may not enter into temptation. Now, actually, Luke is very kind to the disciples here. He said, they're they're sad. Why are they sad? He said something like, one of you will deny me. One of you will betray me. Satan wants to have you all. I get it. And by the way, a Passover meal is like three or four glasses of wine, right? And it's late at night. And Jesus has taught all day. They're wiped out, and the place might have been their campsite. So it's like, okay, go to your bed and pray after three glasses of wine, and you're really sad, right? So we're not sure what's going on here, but they're sleepy, and they're sorrowful. And Jesus says again, rise and pray that you may not enter temptation. Verse 47, but while he was speaking, there came a crowd, and a man called Judas, one of the twelve, was leading them. He drew near to Jesus to kiss him, but Jesus said to him, Judas, would you betray the Son of Man with a kiss? Now, you may know why Judas would kiss Jesus. It's just a greeting, right? But there's no pictures of Jesus. There's no video of Jesus. Everybody's wearing, you know, the robes, and they got the beard thing going. People don't really know what Jesus looks like. So the guards who were coming out to arrest Jesus, they might have seen him teaching in the temple, but it probably would have been from a distance. They didn't want to get the wrong guy. So Judas, who's betraying him, says, it's the guy who I kiss, right? We can say today, it's the guy who I shake his hand. So he, he, he betrays Jesus by identifying Jesus to his captors with a kiss. Now, by the way, a lot of people think, and Uh, It's quite possible that the reason Judas was betraying Jesus at all was because he was trying to force Jesus' hand. They thought he might be a political revolutionary leader who would take his stand as Messiah and finally the Jews would rise up and the Romans would be kicked to the curb. And Jesus just wasn't operating fast enough. So Judas says, you know what, I'm going to hurry things up here. I'm going to exercise my will to get this thing moving. And so thinking that when Jesus is arrested, then that will be the beginning of the revolution. Not anticipating Jesus to say, so are you betraying me now? Is that what's happening? Verse 49. But then when those who were around him, that's some detail that Luke leaves out, that that was Peter who did that. Right? They still haven't gotten that Jesus is the way of peace, not the way of force. So like, Jesus, should we strike with a sword? (laughs) And Peter jumps into the middle, and the sword is like, would be a, that's the word for a dagger, and he cuts off the ear of the high priest, whose name was Malchus, we know that from the Gospel writer John. But just think about that, if you're there, what has just happened? Okay, how do you cut off somebody's ear with a short sword? 
You were trying to stab him in the face or the neck. This is a, Peter is trying to kill this guy, and fortunately for the guy, Peter's a fisherman and not a swordsman, he ends up hitting him in the ear. Like, nobody's just trying to slice off the ear, right? It's just, it's an intent to destroy this guy, and Jesus puts an end to it. And I don't know if he picks up the ear and puts it on his head, I just, like, it's an interesting visual, but he heals. In some ways, Peter and Judas are doing the same thing. They're like, I'm just going to take history into my own hands here. I'm going to make it happen because God is not acting fast enough. No more of this. Verse 52. Then Jesus said to the chief priests and the officers of the temple and the elders who had come out against against him, have you come out against me as a robber, or that word could be insurrectionist, with swords and clubs, When I was with you day after day in the temple, you did not lay hands on me. But this is your hour and the power of darkness. Or, but the hour and power of darkness are yours. Jesus is saying, look, you know I'm not a revolutionary. They do things in the background. They're trying to do things secretly under the cloak of darkness. I've been teaching openly in the temple in the daylight. And you didn't do anything. You know, I know why you're doing it now because what you're doing is illegal. You can't have a trial at night. You're not even supposed to arrest somebody when the sun is down. I know what you're doing is wrong. You know what? Darkness doesn't play fair. This is the hour and the power of darkness. And stunned, the disciples see Jesus not fight against it, but submit to it. Because the way of Jesus, the way of peace, not the way of destruction. So they arrest Jesus and they take him out of the place we now call the Garden of Gethsemane. It's really just a, a grove of olive trees on the Mount of Olives. Verse 54. Then they seized him and led him away, bringing him into the high priest's house. That's Caiaphas, so if, if you know the background, the Romans and Jews, have, uh, the, the Romans are in charge, but they let the, the Jewish leaders think they're in charge, as long as they don't mess up the Roman way too much. The Jewish leader, the high priest of that time, is called, named Caiaphas. So they take Jesus first to Caiaphas' house. They take him to the high priest's house, and Peter was following at a distance. Okay, so here's the first sign of tremendous trouble. Okay, he tried to stab the guy in the face, but uh, he's following at a distance. Now, before we're too hard on Peter for following at a distance, we have to understand that the gospel writer Mark says, all the other disciples took off, right? So Peter, still with some courage, follows, but Luke points out, follows at a distance. He distances himself from Jesus. At this point, we just simply ask, Do you know where you're tempted to distance yourself from Jesus? Do we know where we're tempted to follow at a distance? Maybe it's in sorrow, like these disciples were. You know, sorrow can really lead us to the Lord in biblical meant it's fantastic. Or it can lead us to ourself and into a smaller and smaller world. And we may say, you know, I don't know that I can trust a God who would allow this thing into my life distance. Distance, distance. Maybe we are tempted to distance ourselves from God 
on just the opposite end, when things are going really well because we think, ah, oh, if I really start to, if I'm really praying and asking God to do his will in my life, he'll probably bring something bad into my life, right? Distance, distance, distance. Maybe it's just like uh, some pleasure we want to pursue and God's in the way of that. Distance, distance. Maybe it's just because of cultural pressure. I'm not, if you know me, you know I'm not an anti-cultural person. It is getting more difficult to follow Jesus in Western culture. You should know that. It is more difficult for people of, let's say, my generation than it was for people of my parents' generation. It will be more difficult, probably, for my children for all of their life than it will be for me. It will probably be more different for my grand, more difficult for my grandchildren. We, we, we know this. Right? I mean, surely if we're a conscious in our, in our culture, we realize that there is a growing hostility toward the gospel. Now, sometimes that's because people in the name of Jesus do really stupid things. I get that, right? That's rare. That's, that happens sometimes. It gets a lot of press. Mostly it's because Jesus says, I'm Lord of all, and we don't like that. The uh, Archbishop Cardinal Francis George of Chicago a few years ago made this statement, sort of like trying to put the, the growing secularization of America in front of his people. He said, I, he, so he's the archbishop, he's over several churches, he said, I will die in my bed. My successor will die in jail. His successor will die as a martyr in the public square. His successor will help pick up the shards of a broken humanity and rebuild civilization like the church has always done. Now, you may say, well, that's really over the top, and it might be, but I don't think it's in the wrong direction. So for, that might be cultural issues of sexuality or maybe some of the things I just said before, like there's only one that can take the cup for us. These things create pressure for us, and we sense a distance. Your kids will sense a distance. What would Jesus say? Something like this, I think. Oh, wait, I, th I think I've already said this. Guys, pray that you may not enter temptation. Pray that you may not enter temptation, knowing that there is an hour and power of darkness, but the hour is not permanent and the power is not absolute. Peter's not there yet. Here's where Peter is, verse 53. And when they had kindled a fire in the middle of the courtyard, so the courtyard in front of Caiaphas' house would have been, I don't know, maybe as big as this room here. Uh, they sat down together. Peter sat down among them. Then a servant girl, seeing him as he sat in the light and looking closely at him, said, this man also was with him. But he didn't, Peter denied it, verse 57. He denied it, saying, woman, I do not know him. And a little later, someone else saw him and said, you also were one of them. But Peter said, I am not. And after an interval of about an hour, still another insisted, saying, certainly this man also was with him, for he too is a Galilean. They had a little bit of an accent being from the northern part of the country. But Peter said, man, I do not know what you are talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. Peter the one who just a couple hours before this was jumping into the mix ready to kill and be killed for Jesus is saying, I don't even know the man. Here's what Peter is learning right here. Because of our sin, we can find ourselves in places we never thought we would be. 
Our sin, giving a, given a little fuel, can take us to places we never thought we would be. Some of us are in that place right now. I know that. Some of us have been there. Some of us will go there. Can we not underestimate the power of resident sin in us? This is Peter, the apostle, the one who is willing to kill and be killed for Jesus, saying, I don't even know him. I don't even know him. We, some of us live with, with tremendous carnage in our life because of such actions in our own life. Some of us have created tremendous carnage in the lives of others because of these type of actions from ourselves. How does Jesus respond? Verse 60 again, that Peter said, man, I, I do not know what you're talking about. And immediately, while he was still speaking, the rooster crowed. So somewhere in the distance, a rooster crowed saying, basically the night is about over, usually between 4 and 5.30 in the morning. And the Lord, here it is, verse 61, turned and looked at Peter. And Peter remembered the saying of the Lord, how he had said to him, before the rooster crows today, you will deny me three times. And Peter went out and wept bitterly. First of all, what does it mean that Jesus turned to Peter? So I just think this is great. This insight, I've never had it before in this text. He's in this courtyard. It's night. Jesus arrested. People are busting around. He knows where Peter is. In that courtyard with a bunch of people. It, the whole temple guard was probably there. And Peter's one of them. Peter does not want to be known. He's following at a distance. He's away from Jesus and all the commotion. The rooster crows. Jesus knows where Peter is and he looks at him. What is that look Jesus gives to Peter? Now, this is where we need to do a little personal application. Using our imagination. Put yourself in that courtyard watching this situation. What is the look that Jesus gives to Peter? I'm going to suggest that this is a diagnostic category for our life. How you interpret this look may say a lot about how you think Jesus looks on you and your sin. How does Jesus look at Peter? He's told him. Was it like, see, I told you. You're an idiot. Was it a look of anger? How could you? After all I've done for you, Peter, how could you dare do this? Was it a look of exasperation? Even Peter, I knew it. How does, how does Jesus look on us in our sin? We say this about once a month here. He is the great high priest who knows, knows how to deal gently with us in our weaknesses. He's been tempted in every way as we are, yet without sin. Therefore, he can come to the aid of his people when we are broke and tempted and in our sin and rescue us. I think he looked on Peter with a look that said, I see you and I love you. I see you and I love you. Why can he do that? Because in that cup that he took, he drank down this denial. And he drank down yours and mine. And every other sin that leaves us in places we never thought we would be. And he takes it. He takes that cup 
that we should take, and he takes it to himself. In the Old Testament, there are two cups. There's a cup of blessing and a cup of wrath. In our sin, we say, I don't want the cup of blessing. I'll take the cup of wrath and drink it down. And in the gospel, Jesus says, no, I take that cup of wrath for you, and the only thing that's left is a cup of blessing. That's why we come to the communion table every single week. If you're in Christ, the only thing that's left for you is a cup of blessing because Jesus drank down the cup of wrath. In fact, this is exactly how 1 Corinthians 10 talks about the cup. The cup of blessing that we bless, is it not a participation in the blood of Christ? It's called a cup of blessing. And just before we go to the table, let me just give you one little highlight of the power of understanding that Jesus took this cup for us and what's left is a cup of blessing. I know sin can leave us at a place in our life where we never thought we would be, but let's not forget that God, through the power of the Holy Spirit and the work of Jesus, can work powerfully in our life and sometimes rapidly in our life. Peter, an hour before this, is ready to fight. Right now he's saying, I don't know him, to a little girl. He's afraid. He's in the high He's in this very powerful place of the courtyard of the high priest. I mean, the high priest is inside. Jesus, or Peter senses the power, that, the, the threat against him. That's Peter. Two months later, Acts chapter 4. This same Peter, who knows the cup was taken for him and the cup of blessing alone is left for him, by the power of the Holy Spirit, he finds himself preaching. And he gets hauled before the authorities, but not just any authorities. On the next day, the rulers and the elders and the scribes gathered together in Jerusalem with Annas and the high priest Caiaphas and John and Alexander and all who were of the high priestly family. And when they set them in the midst, they inquired, by what power or what name did you do this? Peter and John had healed someone. Then Peter filled with the Holy Spirit, said to them, rulers and people of the elders. This is the guy who said, I don't know who Jesus is. Two months later, rulers and elders, if we are being examined today concerning a good deed among, made to a crippled man, by what, uh, let me jump on down here for time. Let it be known to all of you, this is Peter, and to all the people of Israel, that by the name of Jesus Christ of Nazareth, whom you crucified, whom God raised from the dead, by him this man is standing before you well. This Jesus is the stone that was rejected by you, the builders, which has become the cornerstone. And there is salvation in no one else, for there is no other name under heaven given among men by which we must be saved. And they said, okay, that's pretty powerful. We're going to release you and say, don't speak any more in his name. And this is how Pete, what Peter says. Whether it is right in the sight of God to listen to you rather than to God, you be the judge. We cannot stop speaking about what we have seen and heard. And then they let him go again, and they bring him back again, and they said, we told you to stop speaking in this man. And over in Acts chapter 5, Peter says this, we must obey God rather than man. Why? Same Jesus, same Peter. The cup has been drunk. Jesus took the cup for you. That power is available in our life. Sin may have led you to a place you never thought you would be. Jesus takes you through that darkness, not because you're great, but because he is. Let me pray for us, and we'll go to the table. Jesus, we thank you for your mercy toward us. 
it's richer than we know. The cup is fuller. It's bigger than we think. It's more overflowing than we can imagine. Thank you that you give it to us. In Christ's name.